What's up, goons? I gotta talk to you about this. Look, as I, you already know this, we're doing a huge dump of content. We got five episodes up ahead of this. This is gonna be the first one of these. I'm re-releasing some old interviews of mine. We're gonna be bringing the interviews two notes of a goon at some point. I'm going to be talking to some interesting people. So I figure why not give people that are checking this out for the first time a taste of some of the interviews I've done in the past. And this is a great one to start with. These are two people who have very much shaped my way of thinking. Um, I'm going to bulk put this together. It's going to be two long interviews. Philip K. Howard and Rick Strassman are both on this episode. Um, Philip K. Howard is an interesting guy, doesn't get his due. He's somebody that it's weird because he's a he's a devout Democrat. He's been on The Daily Show. You can look him up. I've read most of his books. Very intelligent guy. Um, he is a guy, he wrote a book called The Death of Common Sense about how bad about bad regulation here in the United States about and about how the contract allocation system is broken and the federal level. And it shaped a lot of my opinions beyond. So, you know, Ron Paul was my introduction to libertarianism. And I'll tell you this, obviously you, I, I, I consider myself somebody who wants to reduce the amount of government in our lives. I found Philip K. Howard through the daily show with John Stewart years ago He's a guy who's just like, here's all the regulations that are broken. So if you're if you're a person who's out there arguing with friends who are big government people, and they're just like, here's we need more regulation, read the death of common sense. And he outlines hundreds, if not thousands, of laws that make no sense. Uh, further on in the rule of nobody, he outlines a, a system of uh, regulation review that is a great idea that we don't have in this country. It's really shaped a lot of the way I think about how things work. He really goes into a lot of um, New York City stuff and just how broken the MTA is and where they spend their money. There was a system, um, New York, if you've ever, uh, I took a hospitality class in community college as a continuing ed class because I am obviously a very stupid idiot. Um, that's right. Frank, Frank is helping me with these. Frank, the fact that I just said I, at some point took a hospitality management class in community college that was part of a, a continuing ed credit, um, uh, is very much the nature of what a show called notes of a goon should be. Correct. 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 Okay. Um, so I did, I did that, but you kind of, you, you start to get the regulation, I remember, uh, so I when I was taking this class, the teacher was like, yeah, New York, as far as hospitality goes, has a shortage of public bathrooms. It actually makes it a bad tourist destination for international travelers because certain cultures, have they have a huge problem going into a restaurant asking to use the bathroom without buying anything. There's like a, there's a disconnect. And Phil K. Howard, he outlines in the book, uh, Death of Common Sense. And like I said, I've, I read his books, Life Without Lawyers. I read Rule of Nobody. I read, he, he's written several books. He runs a, a charitable foundation called the Common Good Foundation. Um, but he outlines that there was a plan, and I remember this plan, to put self-cleaning bathrooms around New York City that cost a quarter. You put a quarter in, the bathroom cleans itself, you go in shit, 
The next person, quarter, cleans itself. Honestly, sounds like a great place for homeless people to do heroin. They built two of them uh, by the Shake Shack in Madison Square Park. Um, And the disabilities people, the disability advocates were like, you can't fit a bathroom in there. And he does the math on it. The reason why the project was scrapped, there's going to be dozens of these around Manhattan. The reason why the project is scrapped is because uh, people in wheelchairs can't fit in them, but to build it big enough for people with wheelchairs would have tripled, I, I believe the number was tripled, the price of the project, and it just wasn't in the budget. There's all sorts of crazy shit like that in his stuff. We talked to him, like I said, this is a guy who's very much shaped the way I view government. The second person on this show, is Dr. Rick Strassman. If you don't know who Dr. Rick Strassman is, fucking strap the fuck in. Because Dr. Rick Strassman is the guy who wrote DMT, the spirit molecule. And what that motherfucker did was he injected motherfuckers with more DMT than you could possibly smoke. You th- First of all, and I have had breakthrough experience. Frank, have you ever smoked DMT? No, I've attempted to, but uh, it was still... Tom has a DMT connect. I'm aware. Okay. We should smoke D- well, you should smoke DMT. I think it should be done alone. And I Rick Strassman was injecting people with DMT. And I'll tell you this, this is something people don't know about me, but I used to grow hallucinogenic mushrooms for fun as a hobby when I was 20. Um hallucinogenic mushrooms fucking before I ever heard about Terrence McKenna or any of these fucking Terrence McKenna's dead. I can't talk to him. Rick Strassman's alive. I actually talked to Rick Strassman. This is a crazy thing. I talked to Rick Strassman less than a month ago via email. I was like, hey, Rick, how are you? He just released a novel. It's in my queue. I'm going to read it. He's going to come back on the show to talk about the novel. I, ta- I, I sw- Frank, I emailed. I was talking to Rick Strassman less than a month ago. And he's, he said, he's like, yeah, Chris, I'll definitely come back on. I remember when we talked a while back. Fucking. So. I used to grow mushrooms, and the, I used to swear that they would talk to me. I, I swear to God these mushrooms were talking. Frank, you're looking at me like I'm crazy. These mushrooms were fucking talking to me. And so I never read any of this shit. So then I fucking find, I watch The Spirit Molecule with Joe Rogan on Netflix. I'm like, I got to know more about this. I read DMT, The Spirit Molecule. Then I start smoking DMT. Now, DMT does do the thing where two people come out of the ceiling. This is what, and it made me think that there's more, at that point, before I had had a breakthrough experience on DMT, if you said, Chris, are you an atheist? I'd have been like, sure. Now, I don't know what the fuck is going on because I saw two things come out of my ceiling and they talked to me in some language I didn't quite understand, but they seemed to know what they were. I feel like we were communicating. It was a while ago at this point, but like, I would have thought that the world is just you are born and then you are worm food if it wasn't for this. And that's why I say it, it, it does structure my thinking. DMT, The Spirit Molecule, is a very interesting book. He's written two books since then. Uh, we talk a lot about in this interview. Um, he wrote his third book is called DMT. Fuck. I'm losing it right now. It doesn't matter. It's a book about um, DMT experiences that he believes are the prophets in the Bible. Rick Strassman is a, he was a born a secular Jew, became a religious Jew later in life, and is just, and he equated his previous work 
with his current religion. And that's an interesting conversation to talk to. And like I said, he's coming back on the show. That's why I figure we'll throw this on there. I know I've got it on YouTube for the High Society page, but I figure we'll just throw it on here, give it a listen. It's super interesting. I'll tell you this. If by the end of it, you don't want to smoke DMT, you're a fucking robot. All right, look, look, let's check out these interviews. Okay, I'm here with Philip K. Howard, the author of The Death of Common Sense and uh, the rule of, most recently, The Rule of Nobody, also books like uh, Life Without Lawyers. And uh, I actually uh, owe you, Philip, a uh, debt of gratitude because when I first read The Death of Common Sense, uh, I felt like somebody was finally putting all the things that I couldn't quite articulate as to why I'm furious with our current system into words. Oh, good. Good. Well, I, uh, hopefully the rule of nobody makes you feel similarly. Well, yeah, I actually, I actually had a, an odd question for you. Uh, when you wrote the rule of nobody, because you, you actually outlined a, uh, a point plan in the end for how you think we can fix uh, the runaway laws in the country. And I was wondering, is that because with your other books, maybe somebody kept coming to you, well, what's your plan? What's your plan? And you finally <laughs> had to sit down. Because that's what, I mean, that whenever you're saying, whenever you're expressing discomfort, with something that the government does, that's somebody saying, well, what's your best idea? Right. Yeah, I did want to um, uh, present um, a, uh, a a plan, or at least the beginnings of the plan. And, and you know, I propose a uh, bill of responsibilities to the Constitution at the end of the rule of nobody. It's not a complete solution. Ultimately, uh, as I argue in the book, we need to change our... Uh, both our political culture as well as, uh, you know, our sort of public culture um, away from this idea that somehow law can be automatic and you can just have a good law and all of a sudden schools will work well and, you know, budgets will be balanced and stuff. And, you know, that's just manifestly not the case. I mean, everything requires, everything complex certainly requires human judgment whether it's being a good teacher in a classroom or figuring out how to balance a budget. Now, I, I absolutely agree with you on that. There's one thing that just came to mind um, to me is that a lot of these protections and uh, s sometimes the uh, overriding of laws is, is meant to avoid discrimination. Um, yeah. And do you feel that uh, you would get any pushback? Like, have you gotten any pushback on your opinions because of, uh, let's say, uh, you're, I know you're against... Um, policies in schools that are, uh, what are they called? I'm, I'm, I'm losing the word. Uh, zero tolerance policies. Right, right. And uh, now I think obviously you should, a kid pointing a gun should not be suspended. It's just a, a kid playing. But are these things in place so that later on somebody, to essentially protect the school boards so that later on somebody can't say, oh, well, uh, you, you overly punished, say, a black student than a white student? Yeah, absolutely. And, and frankly, th there's a lot of that in uh, in our law, you know, we're we're so afraid of being accused of, of doing something wrong, and frankly, people are distrustful as well. In fact, the worse government works, the more the more legitimately people become distrustful. So, you know, and what I argue in the book is those that distrust is perfectly understandable, but trying to solve it with millions of words of law just makes it worse. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> so it absolutely. You know, you know, it just doesn't help. So, so I think we have to come to grips with the question you ask, which is how do we give people the authority to use their judgment, to use their common sense, but also protect ourselves against the 
uh, one in whatever number of people who will do it really unfairly because they're racist or any other reason. And also the fact that, let's face it, you know, humans humans make mistakes and, you know, all the time, right? We all make mistakes. And so how do we protect ourselves against that? And, um, and, and ultimately the answer to that is not just a legal process, uh, although I think there needs to be kind of checks and balances in place so that we can, you know, catch the teacher who's racist or catch the whatever. But more of an overseeing uh, but, committee than a strict book of laws, perhaps? Uh, yeah, yeah, oversight committees, and frankly, an attentive public. So, so we need people to get involved who are willing to stand up. And so let's say a teacher is accused of being racist. And let's say most people who really know the teacher, you know, the other parents or whatever. Yeah, other faculty members, whoever. Yeah, yeah, other faculty members basically think that's just completely unfair. Well, there ought to be a mechanism where those people who really know the teacher well, you know, in a diverse community, Mm -hmm. can say, well, that's just crazy. We shouldn't have a – we can't ruin a person's reputation because one angry parent – has decided to accuse the teacher of racism. On the other hand, you know, uh, you know, there will be teachers who act unfairly or who are racist. And in that situation, we also need to have the authority to say... To fire them immediately. Uh, yeah, fire them and, you know, and to say, you know, we just don't think you're appropriate here. We think you're just not, your sense of fairness does not, does not comport with our sense of fair values. And But most of those decisions should be made, you know, by the people in the community as a matter of judgment, not as a matter of legal accusations and legal proof, because most of the time you can't either prove or disprove those things. And well, you know that better than anybody else. You can't. Yeah. How do you know what's in somebody's heart? You can just judge them based on what they, you know, what they've, you know, their pattern of of behaving, right? Yeah, obviously you can outlie. You can outlie. Uh, you can see all the discipline ac- disciplinary actions, and if it's uh, disproportionate to one group or another, but you. But then you have. I think there's a there's a, a trust issue with government because it's gotten so out of control that maybe people aren't willing to uh, entrust another government uh, oversight committee to regulate teachers, perhaps, perhaps, and they just like the idea of a strict word of law. Even though it is, I mean, it's bogging teachers down. I, I have an uncle who's a math teacher who's just bogged down with uh, standardized testing, and he's got kids who don't understand math. Yeah, you know, teachers, teachers are crushed with bureaucracy. I mean, there's just simply no way that you can create a framework that instructs teachers how to run a math class well when it all depends on how far along the students are, how many students are, how far along, you know. I mean, there's just so many moving parts that, that, that again, somebody who's thoughtful can, can evaluate whether teachers are doing a good job. But, boy, you can't do it by filling out forms. Who reads all the forms? I mean, you know. It's a good I mean, point. You, 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 you know, you just can't. You, you, so one of the points, you know, the central themes of the rule of nobody, and I really dig down into this, is – is it is it we just can't create a system of automatic government where everything will be fair because it's laid out? What we create is a paralyzed government, and the more you know, there's simply nothing ever got done in the world 
in the history of the universe by somebody following a rule. Rules can be important to protecting us bad things, but if you really want to teach a child, that's all about affirmative inspiration and knowledge and skill and all that sort of stuff. If you really want to balance a budget, you really want to approve a new power line, all those things require judgment in context. You know, the same way it requires judgment to conduct an interview. <laughs> you, know, yeah. just, you, know, it, you know, everything, it, it, that's, you know, what's great about this country is it had a culture of encouraging people to use their judgment, to succeed, to fail, trial and error, all that kind of stuff. And we need rules on the sidelines. Um, you know, law should be like a corral saying, oh, no, you can't go over there. You cannot be racist. You cannot, you know, be unfair in this way or not. But and somebody needs to attend that corral. There's no automatic, you know, there's no automatic test, litmus test for that either. But but the idea ought to be that within that corral, people ought to be free to do things in their own way, not just be following a compliance manual. Well, yeah, I mean, you, you provide uh, tons of anecdotal evidence um, of various things. I think uh, one of my favorite things that you have is uh, at the end of Death of Common Sense, you, you, you show that uh, the Defense Department spent more money on the procedures for reimbursement of travel than on the actual travel expenses. Yes. And I just, mean, yes. It's just that that just shows that, like, the, the, the need for following these regulations and laws is, is obviously counterproductive. It should never, it should never come to that. You know, it's interesting. Um, uh, on the one hand, the people who are opponents of government, say the Tea Party or whatever, um, and I think they're right that government's broken, but, but, but their solution is completely wrong. Most of what government does, most of these laws, most of these programs serve a purpose that most people would consider is really worthwhile. We need oversight of nursing homes. We want you know, kind of principles of fairness and anti-discrimination and such in schools. We, you know, there are lots of, most of these programs we need. On the other hand, if you look at any government program, really any one, including anti-discrimination law, and you say, you say, okay, is it really accomplishing its purposes? You couldn't find one that isn't broken to some material degree. Well, uh, yeah, and, uh, I, you know, I mean, every single one of them, special ed laws, special ed laws are a good idea, right? Well, special ed now consumes, because it's become this bureaucratic nightmare, consumes over 25% of the total K-12 budget. There's almost nothing for early education, nothing for gifted children. Is that the right balance? Nobody's no. even asking the question. You know, it just kind of ballooned out of control well this is all that's also because the law states that they uh disabled kids are uh to go to normal schools right well it's it's which is a good idea in theory yeah yeah it's partially that it's also just this this whole idea that there's no judgment built into it it says you're entitled to an individualized education no cost to a parent and and sometimes this results in you know a hundred thousand dollars or more well that's not really fair to the other kids. You know, there needs to be other countries that are much more liberal than the United States, Scandinavian countries and such, have different ways of doing it where they balance the needs of all the kids, but they don't let one kid get a Rolls Royce while the other kid gets whatever's left over, you know. Yeah, I understand. So, you know, so it's, and again, it goes back to this central theme of, um, 
you know, that all things, all things require a measure of judgment and a way of holding the people who exercise the judgment accountable to make sure they do it fairly. But you just can't, you just can't by law dictate fairness automatically. Yeah, I also kind of think it's a pervasive culture that kind of um, it goes through the entirety of even down to the lowest levels of government. Like, uh, I mean, just a, a story, uh, an aside. I recently was. Uh, you're in New York City as well, right? Right. I was. I was taking a, a bus, and the last stop is across the street from the first stop. And I was about to get on to, at the first stop, and I go across the street where the bus is waiting, and it's pouring rain outside. And the guy goes, "I can't let you on the bus." Uh, until I pick you up across the street. Now, there's no rain shelter there, so I'm across the street, I get in, and the guy goes, listen, man, I'm sorry. Uh, I just couldn't let you on the bus because if, you know, I had gotten into an accident just going around the corner, you could sue. And I was just like, you can follow the rules all you want. That doesn't make you not a jerk for making me stand in the rain. Yeah, yeah, it's just ridiculous. I mean, that's, I mean, that's just endemic in the society. And also the fear of, you know, the fear... Most people... Um... You know, the whole debate over lawsuits and tort reform and all that also kind of misses the point, in my view. You know, the real harm of letting anybody sue for whatever they want under this idea of the right to sue is is not that there's so many crazy suits or that people win if they bring them, because they don't, generally. Is that everyone in America now acts like that guy. It's like defensiveness. You know, doctors order tests that aren't needed all the time because just in case, you know, the sick person gets sicker. Teachers are told never to put an arm around a crying child. You know, there are no seesaws or merry-go-rounds or really anything yeah, any fun, you know, in a classroom, you know, in a playground. And and ultimately, that requires really a kind of a, a, a us to pull ourselves up. Start and say, hey, realize, hey, well, wait a minute. Suing is actually a use of state power against somebody else. Somebody, I, the judge needs to take responsibility in each case to decide whether the, 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 the actions, you know, that are complained about mm. actually are, un, you know, might be unreasonable. Otherwise, they should throw the lawsuit out because so if somebody lets you on a bus because it's raining and go around the corner. Okay. And the bus has an accident. You, you probably do have a claim if the bus driver was negligent. But but that would be true if the bus, you know, had an accident, you know, when you turned around. It doesn't make any difference that you go an extra block. I mean, it's not because it was a, quote, unlawful <laughs> getting onto the bus, right? Yeah. The MTA has to, has to deal with bus accidents. There's no reason in the world why the guy shouldn't have let you on the bus. The guy's driving, you know, a couple hundred miles a day yeah. with passengers on it. There's always the risk of an accident. Big deal. Well, exactly. That's something that maybe a judge should say, I don't have the right. Since I asked him because it was pouring rain and he let me on, maybe I don't have the right to sue the MTA if more more so. Because because, you assume the risk that that you were going to be on the bus at a time, you know, when when you weren't supposed to be on the bus because you wanted to get out of the rain. Great. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you can assume that risk, but we don't have anyone judges making those kinds of judgments now. They don't think that's their job. So, so what I argue in the book is that ultimately, um, this fifty-year experiment in automatic law, 
designed in part to do what you said at the beginning, to make sure people couldn't be racist anymore or unfair anymore. Mm-hmm. When the ne- we pushed the needle too far. And now we've created a society where people don't feel free to put an arm around a crying child or let you on the bus, you know, or whatever. So we need to sort of push the needle back and loosen up and say, okay, uh, we're not going to get rid of the legitimate goals of law, but we're not going to tell everybody exactly how to do everything. We're going to leave room for everybody all the time to ask the question, what's the right thing to do? Here, what's the right thing to do in this classroom or to let the guy on the bus or whatever it is? Let people use their judgment again. And if somebody brings an unreasonable claim, don't let them bring the claim. Say, I'm, you know, this looks unreasonable. I'm not letting you bring the claim because this was, you know, um, if, if there's not an allegation of kind of like sexual conduct, you should never let a parent bring a claim because... The teacher, the child was crying, and the teacher put an arm around the well, it's person. A- absolutely, it's like uh, people were kind of seeing a uh, a lottery ticket almost. It's, it's yeah, it's, yeah, it's crazy, and it's and, you know, and for, and that problem is particularly a problem. I'm told, you know, in in minority communities because you know it's become a it's become like a, a rule of a rule of something that. You know that that teachers are subject to a very strict code, and they're not allowed to do certain things. And if they do them, you can get them. Well, that's terrible for everybody. It's terrible yeah. for the school and the culture and the community. It's it's terrible you know. for the student whose parents are are suing. I mean, on a, that that, yeah. that he's not going to get a great education in the place he is if every if all of the teachers know that he's you know he or she whatever. It, it's not it's it's not good for the individual. That's actually right. and, and, and you know, if, if, if students go into a classroom, I have a daughter who's a teacher in East Harlem. If, if the students go in a classroom and, and, and they feel, like you can smell it, that the teacher is kind of fearful and defensive, that classroom is going to be out of control. You know, particularly with older, you know, kids who are over yeah, 12. It, you, know, yeah. you know, it's going to be out of control. So it's really important if we want to educate our children to give back to educators the confidence that they're in charge. <laughs> you know, who do we want to be in charge? The twelve-year-old or the teacher? You know. The, yeah. So, so um, there are there are some pretty important aspects of the culture that have been that have corroded as a result of this. Um, kind of legal overkill, I think. And, uh, you know, we're going to need to have a national discussion. And frankly, we need some leaders in each community, you know, to to talk about different aspects. And one of the things I call for are special commissions in different areas to come up with simplified codes, like for schools and other things. Like sort of um, like a a community board, something along those lines? But with a little more power? I mean, mean, well, you could have, well, certainly I think you should have a community board type um, structure to to oversee disputes and problems. In, in terms of coming up with a whole new legal structure, I actually think you need sort of national thing. Like you need a a committee that's chaired by Colin Powell and you know some other people like that to to recommend new codes for uh, 
for how to run schools. Well, example. you have uh, that was your uh, your one of your final uh, lists in the bill of responsibilities was uh, the a council of citizens uh, to see, uh, give report appointed by the governors to give reports uh, about the status of government. Yes, because government, you see, government has taken a life of its own. You know, Washington is broken. It is hopelessly, terminally broken. The whole culture is broken. It's not just the rules. You go down there, people have given up trying to do anything. Mitch McConnell's not trying to do anything. He's just trying to make the other side look bad. Same with Harry Reid, you well, know. It's like He's just not doing anything. And, and somebody like President Obama comes in, and he wants to rebuild the infrastructure, and then he realizes he's powerless to do it. Because it takes 10 years to go through the approval process. The law, George Washington himself could not run the government. It would be illegal. There's just too many laws, right? So I actually think Washington is hopeless. And so one of the ideas of the Citizens Council is to get a bunch of old people who or you know, people not politically ambitious anymore to sit there and say, you know something? You're not doing your job. And to issue reports that then the media will write about, because the media is complicit here, too. They don't, they just follow the daily futilities. The Republicans say this and the Democrats say that. When both, in my view, both in view of most Americans, Republicans and Democrats are both completely missing the boat. So, so we need a kind of a, you know, some gray hairs, you know, again, the Colin Powell types or, you know, or Bill Bradley and, you know, people like that. Um, to sit on a council and start saying reports that are official, they're not, they don't make somebody do something, but it, then the media has an official report that says, oh, yeah, guess what? What every American knows, the system of government is broken and they're not doing their job. Now, but here, here lies the problem. These are people uh, appointed by the governors. This is what I was thinking about. Now, since it would be reported by the media and information is powered, now don't their positions, even if they're unpaid, then become valuable to various political parties? They do. They do. And, and anything can be corrupted. But the idea is you get people of high integrity and character and and well, I think Colin Powell is a great example. I, I, what? I think Colin Powell is a great example. I don't. I, I don't yeah, foresee yeah, him yeah, being yeah, corrupt. Yeah. yeah, or or Mike Bloomberg for that matter. I mean, nobody I know thinks Mike Bloomberg says things because he's trying to. Yeah, he's not trying to know, win anybody over. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Help somebody out. You, you might not. I mean, I disagree with him, but 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 he's saying what he thinks, and same with Colin Powell. So you get people who who have moral authority. Not because you agree with them, but because they're um, because they're speaking from a place of honesty. Who, yeah, yeah, they're honesty. They're intellectually honest. Okay. Uh, there's one. There's something. Okay. There's something I wanted to ask you, and I didn't really see uh, where you. I know you spoke about it, where um, government agencies run out their budget so that they don't, their budget doesn't get cut in the next year, and it's something that is always yeah. anytime a story with like. Department of Homeland Security running hundreds of thousands of dollars with the zombie drills or anything like that. It, in, it infuriates me every time I read anything like that. Or, you know, there's a guy in the Department of Agriculture a few years ago that commissioned an oil painting of himself. Do you have any uh, ideas of how to, like, uh, root, out, root out that culture? Well, um, it really is sick. I mean, first of all, sure, you change the rules so that um, – People are given 
um, have the potential for getting more budgetary leeway if they underspend rather than less. So uh, some sort of financial incentive? Yeah, yeah. You you create an incentive. You you reward them for saving money. You say, in any amount you save this year, we're going to get 50. We're going to give you 50 percent of that above that for your next budget. And the same for the next year. So they can keep, you know, having a little surplus in the bank. Okay, I see. So, so it gives you know gives them an incentive rather than now they just take it away. It doesn't, you know, it's 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 as you say, completely counterproductive. Yeah, it it seems to be. Well, it just seems like, like uh, I, I, it just seems to me that it's crazy that like uh, Amtrak loses four dollars on a hamburger. You know what I mean? Like they sell an eight dollar hamburger, it costs them twelve dollars to make. Like somebody is all right. Like somebody needs to step in and be like, okay, we need to fix this. So that uh, people trust Amtrak as a reliable service, because it is important. And if we ever did get a high-speed rail going, which uh, was a uh, one of Obama, uh, President Obama's proposals, it could be great for the country to not have to deal with the air travel industry. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, absolutely right. So, but but all these things require choices, and they require trial and error, and they require, you know, they they, they require. Um, giving people the chance to to adapt. One of the other problems with law is you, know, you write a rule or law and you say, okay, we're going to do it this way, and then it's got to be that way. Well, what happens when you realize it's not working? Well, shouldn't somebody be able to say, you know, let's try it another way? And and it's just it's just it, it's so it's so important. For any for every day when you wake up, you make choices, and halfway through the day you say, "You know, I don't have time for that," or, "Or I have time for something else because it didn't take me enough time." Right? I mean, mm-hmm. well, think of all the those circumstances happen when people are working on a law. It'll be the same thing, but but, but no one in government has the flexibility to adapt. And so, one of the things I call for in the rule of nobody is uh, to give the executive branch, the president, more authority to bob and weave, to use money in different ways, to reallocate, to adapt to new circumstances, because otherwise you might as well just be a robot, Hmm. you know, going by a compliance manual. But, uh, I mean, isn't there a bit of a problem with, uh, I mean... How do you mean? Just like because I know it, it outlines like actual hirings and firings, but I, I mean a lot of people have complained in you know the last decade or so about it, uh, well longer than since George W since George Bush of uh, an overreach of executive power with you know uh, deployment of uh, military and things like that. But are you just talking about the actual uh, administrative administrative work that seems to yeah, be? Yeah, yeah, just the running of government, and so. So, you know, there's a legitimate issue about what the powers of the executive branch ought to be in going overseas and deploying troops and such. And it's the same dispute happening now with Obama as it did with Bush. Uh, and I, and that's a, those are tough questions, and arguably the executive branch has overreached its authority. But when it comes to trying to execute domestic programs, you know, pursuant to laws for, you know, for, for whatever, you know, special ed or you know, The executive branch ought to have much more flexibility in making sense of those laws. And because every, because they all involve human, you know, sort of adapting to the way humans react to them. 
So if you want to get to the you, – we pass these laws. It's like asking somebody to ride a bicycle without having any capacity to kind of lean right and left to keep their balance. Okay, right? yeah. You know, so it's like we put a robot on the – dumb robot on the bicycle, and it sets off, and within about 20 feet, it's fallen over, right, because it didn't – because it can't move back and forth the way a person does. Well, that's what we've done to the executive branch. You know, they pass a law with all this detail, you know, with thousands of pages, and they criticize President Obama because he's, he's uh, you know, extending some deadlines for Obamacare and doing other things. Well, he couldn't make it work if he didn't adapt it because it's just too detailed. It's too... It's just too, it's too complicated a problem without being able to lean back and forth. Yeah, it's almost like a, with with a lot of laws, you almost don't know. Uh, I mean, I'm sure the Clinton administration didn't uh, foresee a housing bubble when they passed an, the uh, Equality and Housing Act. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. And so there are all these things that have unintended consequences. You've got to be able to adapt. Yeah, that's one thing I liked. Uh, one of your things in uh, Rule of Nobody was uh, a time limit of 15 years on uh on laws and i think that's great but it seems to be like some laws have these time limits and the the more practical ones do like something like pay, yeah, well, pay it's, go. It's the ones with budgetary impact so it's not something like anti-discrimination law it's something like uh yeah yeah you know, you know special ed that's forcing people to spend a lot of money well let's rethink it and see if it's working every 15 years you see if we can figure out a different way around things maybe uh, or, or let's save some money or how to do it better or you know you're, you're not necessarily getting rid of the protection but you're just trying to make it work better the same way you would make anything in your life work better yeah i just think it's a great point it just seems like sometimes there are there are like common sense laws that you see fade away um i think it was under bush senior you had uh paygo and it ran through clinton and then it expired under bush jr and that's where you saw it going back to runaway spending in like the reagan era was as soon as it was gone you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And that was something is like, well, that expired and nobody ever talked about it again. Like, it, it, there, there needs to be some sort of force to be like, okay, well, this is a law that is expiring. Maybe we should have a national dialogue about it because it seems to have helped us pay down the debt under the Clinton administration. But that, that was just yeah, exactly, exactly right, exactly right. Okay. Well, just uh, just one more question, and it's just kind of a little tongue-in-cheek question. But uh, when you, uh, how many people, as a lawyer, how many people in your profession are just furious at you? Um, well, I don't know. The you know the the plaintiff's lawyer bar doesn't like me much because they like the idea of using law to get rich, um, and I don't think that's really the right role of the lawyers. Uh, uh, but I would say actually that most people in the legal profession are sympathetic with what I say because most people in the legal profession see this this mindless bureaucracy in their own practice. So uh, you, you'd be surprised at how many people are sympathetic, even uh, government officials. You know, I'm very critical of how government works, but I'm for giving government officials more flexibility, not, you know, taking it away from them. Um, and so it's interesting. Uh, it, it, there are very few closed doors. There are, there are some. The the place that doesn't respond to what I'm saying are the are the senior levels of politics because it'll offend interest groups on both sides. What I'm saying, and so ultimately, like any change, 
that's that's worthwhile, like the civil rights revolution, like the progressive era. The change is going to be led by, from the outside. We need a new idea. We need a new narrative. It needs to be moral. And I think the new narrative is is about, you know, restoring human responsibility and accountability that, you know, get rid of mindless bureaucracy. We want people and we want Obama to have the authority to make choices and succeed or fail, not to be paralyzed. The point of democracy is not paralysis. You know? And and somehow we need to create, and I don't think I've landed on it yet, but you know, we need to create a new vocabulary like the civil rights revolution for making government work again and make it respond to people and to make moral choices as well as practical choices. And that's going to involve you, everyone else in the public, realizing that we need a new, you know, getting getting behind a new vision or or more than one new vision of of remaking our government. Yeah, I think I, I think it will take. Yeah, it's going to take. I think the narrative, the bipartisan narrative, has to start, start to fade a bit. Maybe I don't really know how to go about that, and then maybe then you'll see some of these common sense reforms that you want. Because I I think right now everybody is so afraid of uh, the other side getting in for even a second that they're willing to uh, like wash over what their guy is doing. Like if you if you uh, you know there's whatever the polls are there's a very low approval of Congress as a whole. And the Senate as a whole, but uh, you'll see that people actually do approve of their representatives. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. I think there's just yeah, this I know, fear I know, of that's so weird. But if you go into Congress, the truth is, it's like an institution of powerlessness. I mean, people are just Congress is broken. I mean, people are most members of Congress I know are basically depressed. Really, they have they have no power. They can't do anything. It's just a paralyzed institution. It's not. Uh, I was speaking with a with a conservative thinker the other day. We we're, we're talking about ways in which you could uh, allow government to adapt. I said, you know, if you gave congressional committees real authority to kind of adapt laws and regulations all the time to make them work, you know, you've got a congressional committee of twenty two people yeah. or something. Then all of a sudden. The people in Congress would have something to do, and they could be account. They could both succeed or fail, and be accountable for it. But right now, everything goes up to the 535 people. Nothing can make it through that sieve. Almost nothing gets enacted. Nothing gets taken away. You know. Yeah, and it takes you know, it's, years. It's, it's, it's just paralyzed. Hmm. You know. So, so we're at a point where, uh, um, where I think we're going to have to change our organization of government not to change its goals, not for new goals the way it was with civil rights or the progressive era, but to make it work. <laughs> yeah, I mean, make it have something happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, so. We're incredibly stagnated. But, all right, well, thank you for, thank you for your time. I'm, I very much enjoy your books. I actually just downloaded Life Without Lawyers on uh, audiobook, and I'm going to be listening to that over the next few days. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Right, okay, well, keep in touch. Thank All you. All right, thank you very much, Philip. Have All a nice right, day. Bye. All right, uh, I'm speaking with Dr. Rick Strassman. Uh, he's the author of DMT, The Spirit Molecule, and his new book, DMT and the Soul of Prophecy. And uh, I've actually been kind of interested in this subject for quite a while, uh, especially as it relates to spiritual experiences. Uh, but just so we can get started, uh, just for people who don't know, uh, why did you choose uh, to call DMT The Spirit Molecule? 
Well, I began with an interest in the biology of spirituality um, and uh, was struck um, by the overlap in descriptions of the psychedelic drug states and those described by people in states of meditation, near-death states, other so-called spiritual uh, experiences. And uh, I was thinking there must be some common biological denominator in both uh, conditions. And once I uh, discovered that there was this drug called DMT, which the body makes on its own, um, it seemed like it might be involved in some of the features of naturally occurring spiritual experience. So um, I coined the phrase uh, spirit molecule to um, to convey um, um, the idea that it both is a molecule, but it also seems to lead people into spiritual states. Now, uh, it was recent that it was uh, proven that the pineal gland actually produces DMT, which you had theorized earlier. But uh, I was wondering, uh, has it been proven that it is released in near-death experiences and in death experiences? No. No, that's still uh, speculation. Uh, You know, uh, the primary source of DMT in the body is the lungs. Um, You know, that's been known since the 1950s, actually. Um, and it synthesizes uh, tryptamine into DMT, correct? Yeah, you begin with tryptophan from the diet, which then becomes tryptamine in the body, and then the body adds a couple of um, a couple of you know methyl groups to tryptamine to make you know dimethyl tryptamine. Yeah, so that uh, occurs in a number of organs in the body, but uh, the primary organ seems to be the lungs. Okay. Um, just a quick question. I, I, I speculated about the pineal gland because it had always been an organ of uh, you know spiritual importance to esoteric you know systems of spirituality and of you know physiology. Um, you know, so I did speculate you know back in the day that the pineal could make DMT, um, and yeah, that was just discovered to be the case a couple of years ago. Okay, I, I'm just since it's creating the lungs. Uh, you mentioned in some of the books the the relation, uh, the similar experiences between meditation and hallucinate, uh, well, psycho uh, psychedelic drugs. And I was wondering, is that maybe is it just the breathing techniques involved with meditation? Could that possibly be leading to it? Yeah, you know that's a reasonable idea. Is that if you alter your patterns of breathing, it could alter the formation of DMT in the lungs. Uh, you know, um, the problem with a number of these ideas is that it's really hard to measure levels of DMT in the body. Uh, the concentrations are on the order of, of a you know, billionth of a gram per milliliter of blood or spinal fluid or urine. Um, you know, so even though it's established that, you know, that the body makes DMT, it's still unknown what turns it on, what turns it off, what increases it, what decreases it. Okay, I understand. Um, and in your initial, uh, I find it very interesting, in your initial research, uh, the, the similarities in the experiences with high-dose DMT, uh, they, they, it, it was very striking. So it, it almost seems like it shouldn't just be a drug working if for people to have exact, exact same experiences. Did, did you well, yeah, I know, especially with regard to how strange the experiences were. Um, 
you know, they're really strange experiences, and everybody had them. You know, so it uh, you know seemed to you know tap into the same either area of the brain or the same alternative universe. Um, you know, across the board in the vast number of my volunteers. Now, what I find interesting is uh, in your new book, you uh, you speak about biblical stuff, but originally you had uh, likened it to almost uh, the, the physics, the uh, further spatial dimensions. Uh, like yeah, that. you know, um, one of the striking features of the DMT experience is the sense of reality that it uh, possesses. Uh, you know, most of the time, if you're taking another psychedelic drug like LSD or psilocybin, you know, you, um, you're you always able to maintain the awareness that you took a drug and it's a drug effect. Uh, but one of the interesting things about, you know, DMT is it completely replaces any sense of reality that you may have been uh, involved with, you know, before you were on DMT or, uh, you know, before the DMT experience begins. So... Um, in my studies, the kinds of, uh, you know, theoretical models that I brought to bear all kind of posited that the DMT state, you know, wasn't real. Um, it was a hallucination or, you know, psychological, um, you know, conflicts or impulses being visualized. Um, and so if I approach the volunteers' reports out of that, you know, kind of existential viewpoint of skepticism, uh, they started closing down. They didn't. Uh, they they started to feel self-conscious and embarrassed. You know, so I just you know took the logical next step and started to um, you know believe their stories as the uh, you know as um, well like as you know they presented them, <clears throat> and uh, as 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 opposed to not believing them, I you know decided I would believe them, and then afterwards. Um, I would come up with, you know, models that could explain, uh, uh, you know, the possibility of them actually entering into or apprehending, you know, perceiving alternate, you know, levels um, of reality. You know, so I started looking into contemporary models of dark matter and, you know, parallel universes. And, and I did, you know, see some, uh, you know, footholds that I could uh, step into, as it were, to explain, you know, mechanistically, uh, you know, how perhaps, uh, you know, the receiving characteristics of the brain-mind complex could be changed by DMT in order to allow people to peer into those, uh, you know, previously invisible, uh, you know, parallel, uh, you know, levels of reality. Yeah, it's kind of like, um, it's the way they always explain, uh, when you read, like, a, a layman theoretical physics book, they always explain... Uh, they they scale it down. They have you uh, think about a two dimensional world and how would a two dimensional being perceive what you look like if it somehow decided how to jump. So it's it, it's kind of like that overwhelming feeling, and it kind of like you know when reading your stuff when you put it in that way because I, I mean uh, I mean I've done DMT recreationally, not a high dose, and it does alter your spatial perception similarly to like ketamine or something like that. You know, you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, one of the characteristics of the DMT state is your completely disembodied consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, well, <clears throat> um, it, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, in my study, we gave it intravenously, and the effects begin almost immediately uh, with a very powerful rush, which then climaxes within about a minute or thirty seconds um, into a state of disembodied consciousness. 
Uh, you know, so it is like ketamine in, you know, that way that you lose awareness of your body, but you're still conscious. Um, and it's also a completely different world at the same time. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, th- that's something that uh, was pretty striking about your um, about the the beings that people said they see. They said they were being guided almost, and, and that was almost universal. Or uh, like, what percentage of people actually th- saw that? Well, we studied about you know five dozen volunteers or so over the space um, of about five years, um, and uh, we gave you know several hundred you know doses of DMT. Uh, I would say perhaps a quarter or one or you know one uh, you know third um, of um, of those doses were fully psychedelic ones, um, and in the case of a fully psychedelic dose of DMT, I would say over half of our volunteers encountered uh, you know what I ended up calling beings, um, you know these intelligent, sentient, aware um, you know figures that. Uh, Interacted with the volunteers once they were in that state. And um, of, I, I know you you had some. There was at one particular in uh, the spirit molecule, molecule. There's one particularly horrific account of somebody saying they were raped by them. Like was that commonplace, or is that you know what I mean? Somebody who came back from the hallucinogenic state and had had a terrible experience. Like how often was it enlightening, and how often was it terrifying? Yeah, you know, the terrifying, well, you know, the frankly terrifying experiences were pretty rare. Um, one person, yeah, ex- experienced, you know, a, you know, hallucination or a, or a, you know, vision of, you know, being raped by crocodiles. You know, that was obviously horrible. Um, and, you know, somebody else encountered this African war goddess um, who was quite threatening and scared him, you know, quite seriously. Uh, you know, somebody else felt quite claustrophobic and, you know, paranoid, uh, you know, during the experience itself. Um, and, you know, this is despite uh, me carefully screening and preparing and, you know, supervising people for their experiences. Uh, you know, so one of the take-home lessons of, you know, of our interview today, hopefully, is, you know, uh, it's not a easy drug to take. You shouldn't take it. It can be pretty terrifying, even if you think you're, you know, super well-prepared. Um yeah, you know, but overall, you know, people uh, you know, found the experience quite beneficial. Uh, it was ecstatic or it was educational. It was novel. It kind of established a new, uh, you know, benchmark for, you know, the psychedelic, you know, drug experience. Um, you know, quite a few people described, you know, that they weren't afraid of death um, after, you know, participating in the study. Uh, you know, some had some, uh, you know, novel insights. Uh, into their personality or the nature of existence, you know, those kinds of, uh, you know, take-home lessons. Well, they've said um, the terminally ill patients who take LSD sometimes become more at peace also. Uh, they, uh, they don't fear death as much. Is it, uh, I mean, is that, a poten- is that potential for hallucinations? Do you think that's p- potential for psychedelic research in the future, perhaps some sort of uh, ang- anti-anxiety, like, a, like maybe a short few sessions with a psychedelic as opposed to years of Prozac? Yeah, 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 that's a good question. You know, um, there were some LSD studies like that, uh, you know, back in the 60s, and also some DPT studies, which is a, you know, synthetic, you know, cousin of DMT, was also used in the dying, you know, to help ease their anxiety about dying, their anguish, their despair, their depression. And uh, there have been quite a few new studies going on the last 10, 15 years giving psilocybin as a longer-acting psychedelic that isn't quite as notorious as LSD. 
and uh, a number of those studies have used this compound in uh, in uh, the terminally ill. There's a study came out a few years back from UCLA. There's a study at NYU right now going on. I think there's one at Hopkins about to start or being, um, you know, uh, you know, conducted now. Uh, uh, you know, so it is a you know very promising area. Oh, uh, actually, you know, a couple of weeks ago there was a good article on, you know, on on that kind of work in uh, the New Yorker. Uh, you know, they discussed you know the NYU study giving psilocybin to the terminally ill. Okay, I'll make sure to uh, I'll check that out when we're done. Um, I was going to ask you well, as long as we're talking about psilocybin, I was I would kind of because it kind of relates to your uh, some of your stuff. Uh, I was wondering what you kind of thought of Terence McKenna's thoughts on the stoned ape theory and how human consciousness <laughs> evolved. I mean, I I just have to ask you because I'm very yeah. interested in it. I know there's not a lot of hard science behind it. Um. Well, you know, it's a great idea. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, he proposes, you know, that well, that apes, uh, you know, consumed you know psilocybin-containing mushrooms, and uh, it stimulated all manner of evolutionary changes. You know, as a result of you know being able to, you know, visualize more the sounds that they were making, you know, synesthesia, as it were, kind of uh, crosstalk, you know. Uh, uh, you know, cross talk between you know sensation, well, you know between the various, uh, well, between the various you know sense modalities, um, it stimulated the development of language. Um, also, small doses of you know psilocybin increase you know visual acuities. You know, so that also would have some evolutionary advantage. Um, and you know, there's also you know some data you know that psilocybin can. Increase the growth of uh, 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 of neurons in the brain. You know, so at a number of you know uh, at a you know number of you know different levels, it uh, you know could be that Terence's ideas are you know going to get increasing traction. Okay, um, so the new book is uh, the Soul of Prophecy, in which you kind of uh, talk about the prophetic state in the ancient Hebrew Bible. But originally, you were uh, you were more of a Buddhist. You were raised Jewish, but then found Buddhism, and then later left Buddhism. And you've recently found uh, Ju- Judaism again. Is that? Yeah, yeah. Well, in uh, you know, in terms of my own religious background, yeah, I, I was raised Jewish in a conservative household, and then uh, spent a couple of you know decades studying and practicing you know Zen under the supervision of a Zen organization in the U.S. And um, yeah, you know, I kind of entered my research with the spiritual viewpoint of a Zen Buddhist, and was expecting, you know, a, uh, an enlightenment kind of experience from the higher doses of DMT. Um, and you know, this is you know kind of despite you know my earlier statement about the description of the similarities between psychedelics and and certain you know and you know certain kinds of you know meditation practices. Um, the kinds of you know meditation experiences that struck me when I first began getting interested in this field when I was in college, you know, were the more you know psychedelic you know type the visions and the voices, uh, the out of body experience and those kinds of things, you know. But as you know, time went on and I studied Zen. You know, the goal of Zen is a formless, content-free, egoless state without any words, without any visions, without any content. Um, other than emptiness, which is a 
you know, complex notion, you know, but it isn't an interaction with emptiness. You kind of are completely identified with emptiness. And, you know, so those were the kinds of experiences that I was expecting my DMT volunteers to, you know, to undergo. And I mean, they had quite the opposite. And it was quite the opposite, yeah, you know, because I would say, you know, maybe one volunteer had that kind of, you know, formless uh, experience. All of the rest had quite interactive uh states, uh, you know, where they, you know, related, you know, to the beings and the content of the visions, you know, they maintained their sense of individuality, they were able to remember things quite carefully, you know, they were able to uh, become more involved, less involved, you know, they could negotiate in that state, uh, you know, so it was quite interactive, um, it was quite real, uh, as opposed to, you know, hallucinatory or dreamlike, Um yeah, so I started to, you know, look around for other models and then, uh, you know, decided to, you know, take a look at, you know, my own, you know, foundational text, which is the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. Now, um, something you said the last time we spoke, um, you said that you you just believe that some of the prophets in the Hebrew Bible just had higher levels of DFT in their minds, it, not necessarily, because um, there's one paper that... Um, Somebody wrote recently that they uh, that they had thought that maybe Moses was on D- had consumed DMT or an ayahuasca like substance when he had uh, seen the burning bush and a few other things, but you just think that they had higher levels of DMT in their mind. Yeah, you know there have been a couple of uh, you know hypotheses about you know uh, like outside compounds you know that people took. Uh, you know, there's an LSD like compound in a certain kind of mold. Or you know fungus, and and you know one of of the series is you know is that the manna you know contained an LSD like substance, and you know that the article you're speaking about you know came from an Israeli you know scientist who speculated that you know there was some DMT in the burning bush, and you know that Moses inhaled that, and and other people have speculated about cannabis and in the incense you know that was used in the temple. You know, but um, you can spend a, a lot of time arguing and, you know, looking under every tree and uh, under every bush. You know, but the beautiful thing about the DMT theory is that DMT is made, you know, naturally in uh, the human body. And uh, you can speculate, you know, that there are, uh, you know, conditions in which the elevations of DMT uh, increase naturally. Okay. So, I mean, just for argument's sake, just to not have to look for it is kind of why you came from the point of, they just you just assume that they had more in their brains just to fit your uh, your theoneurological uh, theoneurological model. Yeah, yeah, you know, uh, you can speculate as you know as you know to the stimulus you know for the increased DMT in somebody undergoing a prophetic state as described in the Bible. Um, it you know it you know could be through prayer or through fasting or through stress or through music or those kinds of things. Or it could be, uh, you know, like a miracle in a way, um, you know, like, uh, you know, the result of, you know, divine intervention, which stimulates the production of DNT in the body, which then, you know, mediates, you know, the visions, and you know, then you can interpret the visions. Okay. So, I mean, part of it is, uh, at this point, you, you do believe that God is speaking through DMT? Well... In the case of the prophetic figures in the Old Testament, I do. 
Yeah, yeah. That you know, DMT is you know is you know kind of the you know mediating factor in uh, the content of the visions. Um, it stimulates you know the, you know the production of the visions as a result of you know divine influence or divine emanation, you know, godly emanation. But at the same time, you need to interpret you know the visions too, and you know that also requires divine intervention to. Uh, strengthen what they call you know the rational you know faculty you know to be able to understand what's being presented in the visions um, uh, um otherwise you just might go you know like oh wow uh as opposed to being able to extract you know valuable information from them all right so uh, just for the people listening can you give like an example of how some of the uh prophetic descriptions match some of what you found in your uh, dmt research well, sure. Well, you know, the, I suppose the classical description of a you know, psychedelic prophetic vision is Ezekiel's preliminary vision in the first chapter of his book. And um, he describes the heavens opening up um, like an extremely loud, you know, rushing sound, you know, like the sound of multitudes or the sound of rushing waters. That's pretty typical of the beginning of a DMT experience. Um, he's lifted um, out of his body, flies through space, which occurs early on in the DMT experience. Um, and then he experiences or, uh, you know, perceives um, all kinds of, you know, visual uh, you know, phenomena, spinning wheels, uh, angelic beings with eyes. You know, those are quite, you know, typical of the DMT state. Um He's afraid early on. He, you know, loses bodily strength. You know, that occurs with the DMT experience. Um, he's spoken to. He's exchanged. Uh, you know, um, there's an exchange of information, uh, you know, communication with an angelic or, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, being composed of light, comprised of light. Uh, and, you know, that's quite, you know, typical of uh, the DMT state, too. Okay. Yeah. So it's it's also uh, what I found. It's it's the fact that these people find it to be real. They don't. When people come to from the DMT state, they don't believe it was a dream. They don't believe it was a hallucination. They believe what happened to them happened. Yeah. You know, one of my DMT you know volunteers you know talked about it as a technology you know rather than a drug. You know that it allowed you to enter in, in into some other level of um, of reality um, as opposed to generating it per se. Yeah, and, you know, the prophets or, you know, those experiencing a you know, prophetic state in the Old Testament, uh, you know, they don't really blink an eye. Uh, it's, you know, just assume that what's going on is completely compelling, completely replaces ongoing reality, you know, quite similar to the DMT effect. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I, so, I, I, I find it funny because as I get older, uh, I find these things that I had the stray thoughts that I had in my younger days when I would experiment with psychedelics, like I, I told you last time we talked, uh, the first time I took uh, LSD, I had a feeling that, you know, this was not finite. Like, life was not finite when, you you know, just this thought of your energy leaving your body. And to me, it, uh, you know, similar to, you know, some of your thoughts with the Hebrew Bible, it, 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 it felt like it almost proved what I had been taught as a Catholic, as a kid. Like it was just like, oh, maybe it's not what this book says exactly, but it kind of, oh, this is a soul. It leaves your body. It's just a, it, I, it was an intense thought that I couldn't shake, and it kind of got pushed out of me by my very religious uh, grandmother who thought I was ridiculing her belief system. But it was, it, it was, but it was there and it was real. And as I started reading about this stuff again, I sort of came back to that. And um, 
I feel like, uh, do, do you think that maybe there's a problem with modern religious doctrine that they've kind of pushed away from this? Like there can't be another prophet like there because the religion is invested in there not being more prophetic states. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, that, I guess, started off with, you know, the Enlightenment in Europe and was kind of, you know, finalized by Spinoza, who, you know, ridiculed the whole concept of, of you know, prophecy and of, uh, on end of revelation. And I think he, you know, poo-pooed it for a you know, number of, you know, political reasons, you know, but I think scientific ones, too, is that he just couldn't explain it. But um, I, I think if you, you know, look at, you know, the presence of naturally occurring, you know, psychedelic you know, compounds in the human body, you know, that is a means of understanding, you know, the mechanisms anyway. Uh, you know, what, you know, they're intended for and how they operate and, you know, to what purpose then leads you into more, you know, religious, uh, you know, notions. But, you know, but from the strictly, you know, uh, you know, mechanistic explanatory, you know, point of view, I think we can start to bring, you know, a scientific approach, you know, to the religious experience and a, you know, religious approach, uh, you know, to, you know, brain physiology uh, without, you know, necessarily diminishing the stature of either one. Okay, but I mean, it's obviously there, you have uh, hard inroads with that in any sort of scientific community. The the, the bringing in of the metaphysical, that the, uh, the impossible to prove, uh, like, is there, do you feel that there is a way to get around that where it could ever be, where some of the things you say, like, uh, that... The, the idea that uh, psychedelic is changing your perception and you're seeing things that are there but you can't see without them, is there a w- would there ever be a way to get that to be an accepted scientific principle or at least um, a th- like a, a potential accepted, you know what I mean? Yeah, well, you know, one of the, uh, you know, speculations that, that I've kind of, you know, considered is at you know, some point in the future, uh, you know, scientists are going to develop, you know, cameras, you know, that can photograph the contents of dark matter. Um, you know, and if, you know, that's the case, for example, uh, you can take a picture and then show it to somebody that's used DMT, and you can compare their description, you know, to what this dark, you know, matter, you know, camera, you know, might capture as an objective image. You know, that's, you know, one way it could, you know, possibly be, uh, you know, validated. Um you know, so that's an interesting, you know, avenue of, you know, thinking to, you know, go down. Um, you know, but the more interesting aspect to me is the importance of the information contained in those states. You know, like the ethical and, you know, the moral, uh, you know, quantities or, you know, qualities of um, of that information. Um, and, you know, that's where, you know, the religious, you know, tr- you know traditions can be helpful in extracting the meaning and, and uh, the message of the content uh, in the in in you know those alternative worlds, you know because uh, strictly speaking, you know science is you know value free. It's just interested in understanding how things work, um, and obviously that's been a benefit and a detriment you know to society over you know the centuries. Um, but you know if you can temper you know the inquisitiveness of uh, um, uh, of you know the scientific endeavor. You know, kind of overlay it with you know, you know, some of the moral and ethical, you know, content that you know the religions have extracted over the millennia. You know, from looking at these altered states, these alternative, you know, levels of reality, I think it could be a you know productive enterprise, you know, collaboration. 
Hmm. Okay. So one of the other things that people seem to see, um, they describe uh, like spirals that they think they're seeing their own DNA. Yeah, you know, a couple of the volunteers, you know, described, uh, yeah, spiral visions, you know, double helices, things like that, you know, that, you know, that were reminiscent um, of, uh, um, of the DNA, you know, double helix. You know, I'm thinking to try to remember if there's any description like that among the prophets or those who experience prophecy in that text. Well, um, I mean... Is is there anything with like a serpent or something like that? Could that be a link? Yeah, you know there are descriptions of you know serpents in the Bible and people experiencing prophecy, but they're not especially predominant or that common. You know, there's you know the serpent in the Garden of Eden, and you know there is Leviathan, you know that Ezekiel describes, but that's you know more of a metaphor for the country of Egypt. You know, than an actual you know vision of a dragon. I think. Uh, I um, well, you know, the interesting aspect, you know, too, is you know something I describe in the new book as the equivalence of imagery. Um, in other words, you know, specific information is being clothed in you know visual you know form, you know, which is you know consistent you know, with the culture and of the time in which the experience is taking place. Uh, you know, so it you know could be a specific you know kind of message is you know being relayed by the image of DNA, which may have been transmitted you know through other images, uh, you know during the biblical times. Okay, um, I was actually going to ask you. You had some critiques of, um, uh, I guess, the Western form of Buddhism and uh, with the rise of like shamanism when it comes to hallucinogenic uh, psychedelic experiences. Rather, uh, I was wondering if you could expound on that. Yeah, um, well, you know, I compare and contrast, you know, the ultimate, you know, goal of, uh, of Zen anyway, you know, which is a formless enlightenment state, um, you know, so that, you know, is in contrast, you know, to what occurs in uh, the DMT experience. Um, and, you know, also Buddhism posits the basic unreality of the visions, um, and, you know, also, if you're going to develop a, you know, model which has, you know, wide acceptance in the Western world, um, I think it needs to include the idea of God. And, you know, Buddhism is ostensibly a, you know, religion without a God. Um, and, you know, shamanism is an increasingly, you know, popular means of uh, understanding and integrating the spiritual properties of the psychedelic experience. Um, especially those Latin American varieties, which are using ayahuasca, which contains DMT. Um, you know, it's got the strength of, you know, positing, you know, the basic reality of the states that people enter into. But, um, you know, it, you know, focuses on the spirits, you know, primarily, as opposed, you know, to the one God who, you know, creates and sustains those spirits. Um, also, it's got some ethical and, you know, moral shortcomings. And, you know, obviously, you know, the Western, uh, you know, traditions do. But, um, you know, you would expect any other alternative model, you know, to um, at least, you know, be an improvement um, over the West. And I don't think, you know, the moral and ethical, you know, guidelines or, you know, context of most Latin American shamanism uh, is especially sterling. Well, what, what do you mean? Because I, I feel like maybe some people listening might be thinking about... Uh going and uh, experiencing that for the first time or 
because I mean, it is a growing it is a growing popular trend as as far as tourism goes. So like uh, I was just curious what you meant by that. Yeah, you know I can't speak you know from a lot of experience, um, you know, but I've heard a lot of stories about you know people going down to the Amazon. They 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 spend a lot of money. Um, you know the ayahuasca isn't that great, or they're being you know manipulated for you know sex and for money and for influence. Um, you know, there's murders uh, of, you know, competing shamans for, you know, a you know, piece of the pie. I, I, you know, Stephen Beyer wrote a book which is called, you know, Singing to the Plants. And he's got a really great, you know, uh, you know quote in there uh, about Amazonian shamanism. He speaks about there's good shamans and there's bad shamans, but they're all bad shamans. You know, that's because, you know, the healing which they're doing is placed in the context of spiritual warfare. Like if you become, you know, sick, it's because a bad, you know, shaman cursed you. You know, so, you know, to heal uh, like a patient, you have to, like, attack the other shaman. You know, so it's, you know, this endless black magic and spiritual warfare, and uh, it's, you know, uh, incredibly chaotic, it you know, seems to me. Um, you know, like it isn't an especially, you know, refined view um, of healing or of spirituality. So you think that uh, the Western model, the monotheistic model, uh, now, I'm trying to understand. You don't advocate the use of psychedelics anymore after your experiments, correct? Right, right. So um, in explaining this, you, I mean, obviously don't recommend that this is a better way to get in tune spiritually? Well, you know, I'm kind of speaking at the same time out of both you know, sides of my mouth, because you know, there is spirituality research going on with the psychedelic drugs. You know, there's studies at Hopkins, at NYU, at UCLA, and they're, you know, using these compounds in a spiritual, you know, context. They're increasing people's acceptance uh, of, well, you know, you... their faith. Um, you, know, you know, some of these uh, studies are using these compounds for, uh, you know, for alcoholism and, you know, for, and, you know, for tobacco addiction. And, you know, one of the, you know, uh, you know, one of the you know, fundamental, you know, theories of, you know, how these compounds can help, you know, people with addictions is, you know, that they're uh, undergoing a spiritual experience, and spiritual experiences um, are known to help, you know, people stop abusing drugs. You know, look at the 12-step program. So uh, that's what I was going to ask. Uh, are they using, like, a 12-step program in conjuncture with psychedelics, or, um, like, how are they incorporating spirituality in a scientific setting with uh, psychological yeah. effects? Yeah, um, well... The studies at Hopkins, which are ongoing, are, you know, giving psilocybin in order to uh, cause a mystical experience. Um, and, you know, they kind of, you know, prepare people, you know, to have that kind of experience. Um, and, you know, they supervise them, you know, you know, during their drug experience, you know, to kind of, you know, cause that uh, sp- specific kind of state to occur. Um, and... Uh, you know, in the studies which are using psilocybin to treat alcoholism, I was um, I was involved in a study at the University of, of, of New Mexico just you know recently, um, and uh, you know our team used what's called you know which our um, our team used what is called you know motivational interviewing, um, and you know that's ultimately based on a twelve step you know paradigm, um, and. Uh, what what exactly is motivational interviewing? I, I don't understand. Like you're um you're not coaching. It's um well you're kind of coaching. You're kind of you know determining at what point people are in their interest in changing. Um you know so you're motivating them to change. You know at the same time that you're 
interviewing them and uh, you know determining their you know readiness for change. Uh, you know, so you're doing both. You know, you're determining their readiness to change, and you're working on increasing the motivation to change at the same time. Okay, I understand. Um, so, all right. So you're saying that this research is going on uh, with psilocybin, but there isn't there hasn't been any DMT research with this sort of thing since your research in the '90s, right? No. Let's see. There was one, you know, German DMT study that occurred maybe ten years after you know my study was finished, and it, it was an interesting study. They compared. A, a continuous infusion of DMT with a continuous infusion of ketamine, um, like for you know two three hours at a time for each one of those. What were the yeah, what, what were the doses? Because yeah. you did point four uh, was your high dose, correct? Uh, with your DMT experiences, what were the doses of DMT over the two or three hours in the German study? Do you know? Yeah. Um, well, they gave a loading dose, you know, which was, you know, fully psychedelic. And, you know, they maintained a, you know, psychedelic concentration in the blood, you know, for that, you know, two-hour, three-hour period. Um, you know, but that was a study which was interested in, 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 you know, comparing the psychotic, you know, responses, you know, to either DMT or, or, uh, um, um, or ketamine. Uh, you know, the German group was interested in schizophrenia. I mean, uh, that's kind of how you got started as well, like trying to find that, – that's kind of how you got okayed for research too, right? It was uh, people were looking for ways to stop schizophrenic episodes, so you figure if you can induce it with a drug, maybe you can inhibit the drug? Yeah. Um, it, well, you know, the study you know, which I performed was the first uh, you know, new American clinical research with these compounds of any sort in, in over 20 years or so. Yeah, you know, so um, I had to be quite, uh, you know, straight-laced in, you know, my rationale, you know, for asking for permission. And, and you know, one of the approaches I took is, you know, is, is you know, to refer back to the older studies, which, you know, took place both in Europe and in uh, the U.S., uh, you know, determining if, you know, there is or, you know, was, you know, some relationship you know, between, uh, you know, naturally occurring DMT and psychosis. Um, you know, so I kind of, uh, uh, you know, resurrected that argument. Um, and also, um, you know, I uh, was, you know, kind of invoking the importance of, you know, psychedelic, you know, drug abuse in uh, the larger, you know, community. And as, you know, DMT is a, you know, is a simple, uh, you know, prototypical, you know, psychedelic drug, understanding how it worked, you know, could also help um, in, uh, you know, the, in the, you know, treatment of, you know, drug abuse at the same time. You know, um, but in my study, it, it was just, you know, giving the drug to a group of experienced, you know, psychedelic users and, and you know, characterizing the effects as carefully as I could. Okay, so it was basically just to... Um to see the effects and see if perhaps that the higher levels of DMT in the body were causing uh, mental, like, was causing mental disorder or drug addiction or something like this. Um, well, in well, in the study I did, it was just to characterize the effects. You know, like what happens. Um, yeah, and I asked a lot of questions after people came down, and I gave a, a you know a you know questionnaire for them to fill out. Um, and you know, in, in, instead of you know focusing on uh, either the schizophrenia-like you know features of you know the DMT experience, I was more interested in you know just a, 
uh, you know, phenomenological description, like, you know, what did you see, what did you hear, what did you feel, you know, what did you think? Um, in in uh, the German study, you know, they gave actual, you know, schizophrenia questionnaires, um, you know, like, are you, um, yeah, you know, you know, they were comparing responses, you know, to the drugs uh, in a group of normal volunteers to the kinds of responses a schizophrenic would give to the same questionnaires. You know, so they were, you know, focused on, you know, determining similarities with schizophrenia. And in my study, I was more just interested in, you know, describing the effects in a group of normal people. Uh, had they fa- had they found any similarities or? Um, yeah, you know, well, they found, you know, some overlap with what are called the positive symptoms of schizophrenia with a DMT effect, uh, you know, the visions and the voices. Um, and, you know, they found some, you know, similarities or, you know, some overlap uh, between ketamine effects and what they call the negative symptoms of schizophrenia, uh, you know, like being um, controlled, you know, feeling of being controlled, uh, empty of thoughts, you know, those kinds of uh, states. Okay, I understand. Um, so uh, I, there was actually this, uh, this kind of a... I, I don't understand why you, you went through a lot of trouble getting just getting uh, your just getting able to do your study. I, I don't understand the thoughts in you even uh, you got shut down. You were doing a previous study, a uh, melatonin study, I believe. And uh, somebody that was working on the study with you had shut down your thoughts that perhaps there was a psychoactive effect of melatonin and you didn't talk about it. You said you uh, in in the spirit molecule. You said you uh, didn't go for uh, psychedelic research for a while. It kind of deterred you. Yeah, you know, I started off, you know, learning about how to do research in uh, the early 1980s, and uh, I was always interested in you know psychedelics and the you know biological you know bases of spiritual experience in humans, and um, I was interested in the pineal gland and particularly you know melatonin, you know, because you know, there wasn't that much, you know, known about it at the time. And um, I was, you know, discussing, you know, some of, you know, some of my uh, my ideas, you know, with my pineal, you know, mentor, in, uh, um, you know, when I was, you know, doing my, you know, research fellowship at UC San Diego. And, you know, um, so he was uh, quite a, a straight-laced guy, spent, you know, uh, he hits, and had spent a you know number of you know decades you know looking at the pineal gland and circadian rhythms and melatonin, you know. So I was you know kind of you know feeling comfortable. My guard was down, and I thought out loud, well, you know, is there some possibility you know that the pineal you know might make a you know psychedelic compound? And he felt obviously threatened. It would you know kind of you know besmirch you know the, you know, field that he had, you know, dedicated, you know, his entire, you know, professional life to. So he, you know, basically said, you know, don't, you know, use the word pineal and, you know, psychedelic in the same sentence. So I, you know, kind of said, okay, I'll just keep that to myself, you know, for a while. You must have been pretty gratified when when they found, when they finally found that DMT is created in the pineal gland, you must have been pretty gratified. I was happy. I, you know, sent him a copy of the paper too. I just couldn't, you know, resist. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's such a strange thing because uh, they shut down. Um, I guess with the advent of LSD in the '60s, uh, it led to everything being labeled Schedule One, and they shut down 
any studies on psychedelics. But it seems strange that uh, the scientific community, I guess they have to adhere to government regulation, but to not push for it with just the level, I mean, just how interesting it is, the experiences that everybody has. You know, you're in a, these college settings, so there's people around you having these experiences. So just the experience that these people have, in order to, to shut it out, it just seems, it seems crazy. Uh, for lack of a better word, like to, um, to not want to study it or to uh, be scared to study it or to think it has no medical value when people are having profound experiences. People change their lives after a psychedelic experience. Yeah, um, uh, well, you know, there was an epidemic of out-of-control, you know, LSDs. You know, there were a lot of people ending up in emergency rooms. You know, there were a lot of people going crazy, you know, just because they didn't understand the dose and the right, you know, way to, you know, take LSD. Uh, you know, so there were a lot of LSD casualties out there. Um, you know, so the government had to do something. And, you know, guys like, you know, you know, and, you know, guys like, you know, Tim Leary, you know, who were doing this research, uh, you know, we're just, you know, kind of, uh, you, uh, you know, promoting uncontrolled, unbridled use. You know, so um, I think the government, you know, panicked. You know, they said, okay, if we can't, you know, trust, you know, the researchers with these drugs, we certainly, you know, can't allow them to continue because, you know, they're going to go off the deep end and encourage, you know, the vulnerable, you know, youth of America to go crazy. You know, but at the same time, there were some good, you know, there were a lot of good studies going on in, uh Europe and in uh, the U.S., you know, so at uh, the same time, those studies were shut down, too. And, you know, as a result, uh, you know, people didn't stop using LSD or other psychedelics uh, on their own. And, um, you know, uh, um, on animal research, you know, continued unabated, you know, but human studies, uh, you know, just ended. Well, I mean, I I don't see, I mean, in animal animal research, you can't see the effects on the mind i mean i suppose you could see the effects on brain chemistry but you can't really see the effects like on the mind like and no no you could see that yeah yeah well um you can see the effects on brain chemistry and on uh, you know simple behaviors you know like head turning or head twitching or you know do they press a lever with yeah. a new drug like they press a lever with lsd that kind of thing i read there was yeah, a study where they gave cats lsd and uh they began to behave similar to kangaroos Standing right, on. right, right, exactly. You know, but a cat, you know, can't, you know, tell you what's going on, that they're seeing God or they're having insight into their childhood, you know, that they had never had before. Mm. So, I mean, I feel like, but I feel like maybe this, uh, is there any uh, outlying in the community, like, uh, or scientific community that this has hindered things? Because you have people now uh, almost self-medicating with psychedelics. Because, I mean, I've known people throughout my lifetime that uh, were diagnosed with OCD and were like, oh, I just need to take shrooms once every four months. And uh, I, I, I don't have OCD anymore, so I, yeah, I don't see yeah. that's not safe. Uh, um, well, there was a study came out of Arizona a few years ago. You know, you know, that were looking at that um, exact thing. You know, they gave you know psilocybin you know to people with OCD, and it was quite helpful. Yeah, and um, yeah, uh, there's a lot of you know uh, reports of people not using alcohol or heroin or cocaine after you know psychedelic experiences. Uh, ibogaine uh, is a big one with that, right? Yeah, yeah, you know, there was a big interest in Ibogaine some years back, and there still are some clinics, you know, that are using it, uh, you know, to good success. You know, there's one in, I think there's one in Europe. I think it might be in Amsterdam, I'm not sure. And, you know, there's a couple that are ongoing, or, you know, there are a you know, couple of Ibogaine clinics which are, you know, busy in, you know, Mexico right now. Um, 
Yeah, uh, yeah, you know, so there are all kinds of, uh, you know, uses for these drugs. And, you know, it, it is quite gratifying after my study took place, you know, that it kind of opened up, you know, the, uh, you know, the field of American research. Um, and, you know, uh, you know, there's good studies taking place, you know, mystics, well, like, you know, mysticism studies, spirituality studies, you know, uh, uh, well, you know, substance abuse uh, ex- experiments, you know, terminally ill, you know, people, um, you know, end of life, you know, palliative, uh, you know, care kind of work, uh, you know, so, you know, things are picking up, uh, you know, there's, uh, you know, there's there quite a bit more interest and a lot more, um, you know, studies going on, you know, nowadays than were even taking place, you know, five years ago. Now, uh, when you, when you finished up your study, um, you had, uh, you, uh, you said you had some, uh, problems, with uh, your spiritual community, because you had a Buddhist community, and you said that you were likening it to the uh, the meditation, the the uh, enlightenment phases of people with meditation, and they they just didn't have uh, they didn't like that. They, it was a problem for you in that. But was there a problem in the scientific community with some of the notes you took? Or um, I stopped my study in you know 1995, and my book came out you know five years later in in, in you know 2000. Um, and, you know, quite a few you know, scientists, you know, have, well, you know, they've read the book, they bought the book, you know, they've been in correspondence with me. But, um, you know, I think as a rule, you, you, there still is an uneasiness in, you know, in, you know, talking about spirituality and brain you know, science at the same time. Uh, you know, there is this, you know, new field which, which is called, you know, neurotheology, which is trying to understand, you know, the biological basis of spiritual experience, uh, you know, the brain chemistry and the brain physiology. Um, it's a new field, still kind of small, but, you know, it is uh, up and coming, and, you know, people are, you know, publishing and, you know, talking about these things in a, uh, in a you know, manner that would have been inconceivable 20 years ago. It's it's funny because uh, all right, you talk about things with the brain and the prophetic, like in your book, where you talk about the pro- uh, prophetic state, similar to the DMT state. Uh, it, when you say something like that, a lot of times people will come and think that you're 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 talking crazy talk or whatever. Like they just don't they, they they can't see it. It's just your brain playing tricks on you. But anytime a physicist likens the symmetry in the universe to a divine plan, they get articles printed about them and people. You know, it's talked about in a in a more reverent way. I guess is it? Do you think it's maybe because everybody is experiencing their own mind and you can't experience the vastness of the universe? Like, because it just seems like they're both science. Like, why can't you see? Why can't you see God in your mind, but you can see God in the universe? Well, yeah, I think it bespeaks how we kind of you know denigrate subjective experience. You know, but if everybody is experiencing, you know, a, a, a you know comparable subjective state, you know, that becomes objective data, right? You know, you could ask, you know, like a million people, have you experienced, you know, this thing subjectively? And if you know all of them agree or you know say yes, you know, that's objective data. You know, so uh, I, I think also, you know, too that you know people just are spooked about the idea of drugs. You know, they just hate that notion of drugs. There's some kind of a uh, you know, bugaboo about, well, you know, DMT is a drug, as opposed to, you know, my, you know, trying to, you know, frame it as a, you know, molecule, you know, that the body makes. You know, it, you know, seems necessary for normal brain function, for normal visual function. 
But uh, when you start, you know, talking about a drug, I think people just get, you know, nervous. Like uh, you're going to lose control. Uh, you'll act irresponsibly. Uh, you'll do things that you shouldn't do. Uh, you'll become low level or you know low life. You know, so uh, I think we have to kind of you know reframe you know the whole you know model. You know, like it is you know science. It's all chemistry. It's you know chemistry. If you take a drug, it's chemistry. If you don't take a drug. You know, so um, I think, you know, that the boundaries need to become a little more porous. Okay. Uh, I feel like, yeah, I feel like uh, with legalized cannabis, I mean, whatever, I guess the money is talking, but the science that goes along with it, I think uh, maybe in this one way, it will finally be a gateway drug. You know what I mean? With, the, with, the st- with all the cannabis studies going on, maybe we will start to see more people um, look into the psychedelic nature thing, maybe it'd see them more as a tool than, you know, a leisure activity gone wrong because everybody takes antibiotics or drugs the classification of drugs is so is so broad that maybe we just need new terms yeah and you know despite you know you know and uh, well you know but uh, you know speaking of you know cannabis um, um even though there is a you know movement to legalize it it's still really difficult to do cannabis research hmm. um it's, you know, still kind of an economic, you know, political thing, which is, you know, driving, you know, the legalization movement. It isn't really, you know, based on any new, you know, scientific data. You know, most people are invoking old studies or, you know, you know kind of old, uh, you know, business uh, when, you know, talking about the brain damaging or non-brain damaging effects of, of, you know, cannabis, you know, the lung effects, the endocrine effects, those kinds of things. In, in, you know, comparing, uh, you know, the toxicity of cannabis, you know, to alcohol, for example. You know, but if you want to do a study of cannabis and cancer, cannabis and, um, you, know, uh, uh, you know, PTSD, those kinds of things, um, you have to get, uh, you know, your permits from FDA and from DEA, and, you know, those are still remarkably difficult. Okay, so it's the same. It's the same kind of problem that you had uh, even in the '90s. I mean, you probably had a bit of more of a roadblock, but just uh, I remember in your book you were just like basically you got approval, and then they were like, "Well, where are you going to get it from?" And it took you years just to even obtain human grade DMT. Yeah, yeah, it, you know, it took a couple of years, you know, to get my permits. Uh, you know, the, well, it's even more complicated, you know, with cannabis because there's only one, you know, source of legal cannabis. Is that the federal in government? The country. Uh, you know, it's a you know, cannabis plantation in uh, the south. You know, so that's really quite uh, you Wait, know, is that quite you know, it's you know quite you know restrictive in you know terms of you know who is able you know to access you know that cannabis you know for you know for doing research. So that's the only um, cannabis allowed to use for research. So anything that's grown even for medical purposes in say California or Colorado, they can't use that for research. Yeah, that's right. And, and you know, with DMT, I was able to, you know, find an academic colleague to make it, you know, so um, I didn't have to go, you know, th- you know through that one extra, uh, uh, you know, government gatekeeper. So it was, almost, it was almost easier because it's a chemical that can just be synthesized. It doesn't have to be grown. Uh, it, it, it seems like almost maybe the USDA would get involved since it's an agricultural product. Yeah, um, I'm not, you know, sure what, you know, the regulatory, you know, committees are, or, you know, uh, or, you know, the administrations are, but yeah, um, it would be, you know, but, you know, there would be, you know, one more, you know, layer of, 
of uh, of bureaucracy. You know, limiting. Well, you know, limiting access. Well, you know, if if you look at the explosion of you know clinical research with the psychedelics, it is much greater than any clinical you know research with marijuana. You know, there's still just you know I don't even you know know of any ongoing you know marijuana studies in the U.S. right now. To be honest, um, I can't think of any. Um, as compared to all of the new psychedelic studies going on right now. Yeah, it just, it, it, I don't know, sometimes it boggles, it like boggles my mind. Like it's something I'm very interested in. I've talked to other people uh, on the show about just how hard it is to get approved for anything medical or scientific when it comes to, just to get, like, uh, like uh, you mentioned somewhere that uh, some LSD has very few side effects for people in the right dosage, and it can improve mood, but you would never see... I don't think, not that you would never, but it, I feel like it would take decades before you saw that used to maybe treat PTSD or something like that. Like, at least accepted and not in the research stage. It would take decades, I would imagine. Oh, um, well, do you mean just like in a clinic as opposed to like in an academic research setting? Yeah, like what, to, for it to leave, because, you know, there is the, the psychedelic research that's going on is promising. Right. But I, right. I talked to somebody a few, I talked to uh, somebody a few months ago about uh, transcranial stimulation. Which is something that they've been working on. They've been trying to get this approved for medical reasons for, uh, tw- like I think twenty years. And he he said basically, hopefully within the next ten. But it could be helping people now. There's there's minimal. They have yet to find a side effect other than you know slight you know where where they're administering the uh, stimulation, slight maybe a slight burn. But the same with uh, uh, LSD. I've heard that in small, very small doses, it can increase mood and help people move forward. And there's no visible side effects. But to see it outside of a research setting, I can't see it happening within the next few decades. I mean, maybe just because of the looming uh, specter of LSD in the 60s still, but it just it seems counterproductive to society. Yeah, you know, there are some studies of LSD that are just occurring. There's one in Switzerland, you know, one in the U.K., um, but, you know, they're, yeah, yeah, they're limited, you know, to the academic setting. You know, but I think at you know, some point, you know, psilocybin will be, you know, breaking out of a purely research environment, uh, you know, because of all its, its, you know, utility. And, you know, it's an easier drug to work with than LSD. It's not as, you know, long-lasting, and it, you know, doesn't carry the notoriety. Uh, you know, ketamine's, you know, been used as an antidepressant uh, for some time. It began within the research context, but now there are ketamine clinics that are springing up, you know, the private for-profit clinics or in, in you know, academic settings, but they're not, you know, research anymore. Um, you know, you can come in, and if you're depressed, you can get your ketamine infusion. You know, so um, it doesn't, you know, necessarily require, you know, being like a volunteer in a research study. It's, you know, more commercial. Oh, you know, I now. didn't know that. Uh, and it's, and it, the, the, the effects are uh, supposedly longer lasting than, you know, taking, you know, a pill every morning? Um, well, they're a lot, you know, quicker. It's, you know, like an immediate response as opposed to the week or two or three it can take with antidepressants. I'm not certain, you know, in uh, you know terms of, you know, the durability of the change. You know, if you have to come in every so often, to, you know, to get a booster or whatnot. Um, I'm you know, not that current on, you know, the specifics of uh, the treatment. You know, but it is, you know, taking place um, in a more, you know, commercial kind of setting now. Okay. Uh, well, we're getting uh, we're getting kind of close to the one hour mark, and uh, I was just wondering if is there anything you want anybody to take away particularly? I mean, obviously the book DMT: The Spirit Molecule is available. The new book is DMT and the Soul of Prophecy, which uh, I'm about 
three quarters of the way through. It's it's an interesting read, and uh, the comparisons are there. Is there anything you would want somebody to just as like a final thought? And then I just want to ask you one more question after that. But like, what would you want people to take away from your uh, from the research from the books? A totality. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I think it's important to enlarge, you know, the discussion. You know, that's the most important thing is, you know, to not, you know, prematurely, you know, close off, you know, some of the possibilities, you know, which exist, you know, both for understanding things and for, you know, the practical applications of the psychedelic drug state. And that's the that's pretty much the main reason for you for you using the Hebrew Bible because it's the basis of the monotheistic religions, and you just wanted to explore there first. Yeah, you know, um, I don't think we have a cogent spiritual model in in uh, the West, you know, for the psychedelic, you know, drug state. And if you know, if you know, turning to the Bible as a key, perhaps to understanding, integrating, interpreting, applying, you know, some of the spiritual aspects of the psychedelic, you know, drug experience, and that could be useful. Like it, essentially, if that if that makes more people apt to it. Yeah, you know, if it gets you know people. You know, interested in 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 the Bible. I mean, that would be great. You know, like uh, like I you know worked on my study and I became interested in uh, the Bible. So I, I think it is a you know it is uh, you know quite a good key. Well, conversely, or, if you get people that are interested you know, in the Bible, uh, um, or you know, guide you know to understanding what's you know going on in those kinds of experiences. So um, I think you know that in in instead uh, of Eastern religions or you know shamanism as a model for understanding what's going on in these states, we ought to be you know looking at our own traditions a little more carefully. Hmm. Okay, that's interesting. Okay, so I have one more question before we wrap up, and it's kind of of a personal nature, and I wanted I wanted to get your thoughts on it. Um, do you think? All right, whenever I've been in a room with people who are on drugs, you, and you're not, you kind of start to feel like you are. Do you th- right. do you think that there is something to that? Maybe a, an overproduction, or your body, your mind compensates in DMT production. It's just when I, as I was reading your stuff, I kind of thought about like when you said like the the meditation state and this and that. Like if you've walked into like a room of people and hung out with a bunch a bunch of people on mushrooms or LSD, after three or four hours, you start to feel like you've taken drugs, even if you have not. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's called a contact high, right? Um, well, I mean, that's a contact high is if you smell weed smoke and you can get a little high. But this is just something that I've always, I've always been curious about. And if anybody would have some insight on it that I've ever spoken to, it would be you. Yeah. Um, well, you know, uh, there's all kinds of you know theoretical ways of understanding how that might occur. You know, there you know could be you know telepathic you know kinds of things. And, you know, that wouldn't be like, you know, the woo-woo, you know, telepathy. But, you know, if, you know, somebody's on drugs and their brain is in a particular state, you know, there's, you know, field effects, electromagnetic, you know, field effects, which are being, you know, generated in the brain. And, you know, so those can influence, you know, things at a distance. You know, so there can be, you know, resonance between brains, as it were, or, you know, consciousnesses. Um, you know, in close proximity like that. So there's certainly a plausibility um, to it. And, and, you know, there's pheromones. You can smell things unconsciously, oh. which could be transmitted between people, uh, which could, you know, perhaps uh, increase the amount of, you know, certain brain, you know, neurotransmitters or, you know, substances in, you know, somebody that's straight, you know, you know that's around and being influenced, you know, by the pheromones as well. Oh, well, I'm really glad you said all that because sometimes people just think they're crazy. 
It's just a... Well, you could be crazy, too. That's another... <laughs> well, yeah, I, I suppose that could just be a thing. You could just be swept up in the moment. I just was wondering, because, you know, uh, maybe maybe your body understands what's going on, your mind understands what's going on at a subconscious level. Perhaps maybe there's just a, some generation of extra serotonin or something like that, that just because there's you're, you're understanding something on a deeper level than you even know. That's kind of what I always thought about it. Yeah, you know, it's unconscious communication. It could be communication through, you know, fields, electromagnetic fields. It could be, you know, communications through, you know, pheromones, which are, you know, kind of uh, experienced, uh, you know, through the, you know, uh, well, you know, through the olfactory sense without actually being smelled as such. Yeah, you know, so, you know, there are, you know, ways to explain that. Okay, I understand. Uh, all right, so I know you have things that you have to get to today, so I guess we'll just wrap it up. And uh, once again, thank you very much, Dr. Rick Strassman. Uh, the book, the new book is DMT and the Soul of Prophecy. I recommend everybody check it out. And again, thank you very much, Dr. Strassman. Okay, thanks a lot, Chris. I enjoyed our, our, our interview today. Thank you. Have a great day. Well, show me the way to the next whiskey bar.
must say goodbye.